welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 286, How COVID-19 May Affect Our Wild Turkeys. And I am your co-host and the guy who is still waiting to put a tag on a turkey's leg. And I am your co-host and the guy who is tired of sitting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in the same boat. I'm ready to get back after them, man. Well, you know, I, I always have said that missing turkeys sucks, but it's catch and release turkey hunting. You know, you get to hunt that turkey over again. Yeah. I guess I've also left out one other version of catch and release turkey hunting, and that is, you know, screwing up the hunt, not getting set up quick enough, moving at the wrong time, so on and so forth. So Sounds like a, a guy talking from experience, potentially. Could be, could be. And, <laughs> you know, I, I guess at this point I don't want to let too many cats out of the bag because we're going to hear some of these hunts. It's yeah. just going to be... A little while before we hear them, but we're going to hear some of them because every single one of my screw-ups is a learning opportunity. That's a good point. For me, too. Yeah, because you'll be able to analyze that whole situation and think, huh, if this variable had changed, yeah. I probably would have killed that bird or at least shot at that bird. Yeah. And, Interesting. you know, I think a lot of them will be relearning opportunities as well. So, yep. yeah, we'll, we'll get into some of those. I'm telling you, I've had some unbelievable hunts this spring and i've got some really good audio to go with with some of them too so i'm looking forward to sharing some stories even though there's no fresh wild turkey meat in my freezer well not gonna lie if there was ever a year to spare a few as we're gonna talk about in this podcast it's a good year for this to happen for you (laughs) yeah you know that's that's not a bad point i still I'm not going to break the streak of not killing a turkey in a season. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen. It's just yeah, a you're going to make it happen. So I'm, it's just a matter of it's a good year for you not to kill five. You know what I mean? So or eight or yeah. ten. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're still going to kill ten, just not all in Alabama. Well, yeah, I wouldn't kill eight in Alabama either. So. <laughs> All right, we have an 
awesome interview for you guys today with truly if you're on social media our special guests for this week's episode are probably two of your favorite people to follow on social media besides cameron and me (laughs) so we have doctors brett collier and mike chamberlain yes also known as dr short spur and wild turkey doc yes We've got them in an interview for you guys today, and it's a long one. So Cameron and I are going to be very quick with our intro and our outro. So how about a little housekeeping very quickly, Cameron? Yeah. So just a reminder to everyone, we have the Owl Hooting Contest. That will be going on for another week. Actually, that will be going on for another two weeks. We're going to announce the winner on May 7th in that episode, and there's been... A few more entries, but you still have really good odds in this contest. Yes. So in order to enter, please send us a natural voice owl hoot to one of our social media pages, the Turkey Hunter Podcast on Facebook, at Turkey Hitman on Twitter, or at the Gobfather49 on Instagram, and send us a natural voice owl hoot, and that will put you in the running. If you win from our judgment, and you will be judged by Preston Pittman as well, Mm -hmm. that will put you in the run-in for a custom one-of-one, just-for-you, box call, handcrafted from the man Preston Pittman and his game call company. So that is a prize worth hooting about. So send us some hoots. You got two weeks. Yes, indeed. So, believe it or not, that's our only housekeeping item we have for this week. Yeah. And I think the interview we're about to embark on for this episode could be some of the more vital information you're going to hear this year from our podcast. I think this, we talk tactics and how to kill turkeys and how we have killed turkeys and how to have more success. Well, in this episode, you're going to learn how we can have more turkeys and the status of the turkeys, especially in the Southeast. So I I think this is very important for everyone. Yeah. Hey guys, listening very closely to this we've got two wild turkey experts and i'm going to go out on a limb and say the the two wild turkey experts in the country yes and hunters they're wild turkey experts who also hunt the bird which we'll discuss so i think great information i can't wait to hop into it so what do you say we we go for it let's do it we'll see you guys on the other side see y'all on the other side Hey guys, I cannot be happier to tell you that I have on the line with me tonight, not only Cameron Weddington, of course you would expect here Cameron, but I have two other special guests, and those guests are Brett Collier and Mike Chamberlain. And for you guys who do not know who Brett and Mike are, We're going to let them tell you about themselves very quickly because they know them better than we can. And I don't want to leave anything out. But basically, these two guys know way more than any of us do about wild turkeys because it's their job to study them. So not just their job, it's their passion as well. So I'm going to just go ahead and say, Mike. How are you today, sir? And what part of the world are you in? Because I have a feeling you are not at 
work right now? No, no. Yeah, I'm not. I'm sitting in my truck because my kids are trying to do schoolwork at home and using all our bandwidth. So (laughs) I'm actually sitting in a a neighborhood pool parking lot on Wi-Fi talking to you guys. Yeah, everything is good within reason. Just plodding along, dealing with the realities of what appears to be the new normal, or at least for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. So, Brett, same question to you? No, certainly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not stuck in my truck as Mike is because my kid is not doing homework. She's actually out having an online piano lesson right now. So I am sitting on the back porch in a rocking chair at the house having not seen my office in about a month now. Wow. Well, I guess the question is, are you missing the office? <laughs> you don't have to answer. <laughs> oh, no, I'll tell you right now, I'm not, I'm not missing the office, but I do miss the interaction with the people. Yeah. That's a good yeah. answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll, agree, I'll agree with that. I went in my office yesterday to test some some things out and and yeah it I, I actually miss sitting in my chair i miss seeing the people at my office that stimulate my brain but most of all i miss quiet <laughs> <laughs> just silence like i can sit and read and that is not even an option right now at least not for for long yeah challenging times for all of us yeah no doubt no doubt so Again, we'll start with you, Mike. In case some of the listeners don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about you, where where you are as far as work-wise, and maybe how about just one project or study that you have that's ongoing right now? Yeah, so I basically, I'm, I'm a suburban kid from Central Virginia, grew up hunting and fishing with my dad, was fortunate enough to to have the resources to be put through an undergraduate degree. I went to Virginia Tech and then ended up in Mississippi State doing my graduate work where I did both my master's and my Ph.D. And and from there, I moved on to LSU where I I was a faculty member for about 11 years studying turkeys as well as a bunch of other stuff. And then about 10 years ago, I, I was given an opportunity to come to the University of Georgia, which is where I'm at now. and Although I have studied quite a few critters, coyotes, bears, deer, et cetera, since I've been here, the lion's share of my work, at least recently, has been almost entirely on turkeys. And so I guess collectively I've been best birds since about 1993. So, yeah, so about 27 years I've, I've been doing research on turkeys. Wow. Long time. Brett, same deal with you. Yeah, I'm actually a basically East Central Illinois farm boy. Grew up in a in a rural agricultural county uh, about an hour south of uh, where the University of Illinois was. And after going to uh, you know undergraduate there at uh, Eastern Illinois and Oklahoma State for grad school, I I did my doctoral work at the uh, University of Arkansas, and then I had the, the fortunate opportunity to going postdoc down at Texas A&M University where I started, uh, I guess, working on turkeys pretty much full-time working on Rio Grande. And I spent the better part of a decade doing not exclusively as Mike had, you know, 
noted, you know, working on a whole bunch of different things, but, you know, passionately studying turkeys there. And then in 2014, um, I was uh, hired by Louisiana State University to become a uh, faculty member there. And, you know, the same general deal, you know, I've studied deer and squirrels and birds and, and all of that, but uh, almost continuously throughout that process, I've been working on uh, wild turkeys as well. So I guess that for me, wild turkeys have been a primary focus of my career for about the last 17 years, probably. All right. And just for the record, uh, and I already know this, just for the record, do you guys turkey hunt? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh... <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I grew up, I've been turkey hunting since I was old enough to carry a gun. I've hunted birds in the fall. That's how I grew up hunting turkeys, actually. I, I grew up hunting birds in the fall in Virginia. That was a, a real popular pursuit. Not as sexy as spring hunting, but, but still super enjoyable. And I, uh, I've hunted birds all over North America. I've, I've turkey hunted in New Zealand. Uh, I mean, you name it. Definitely a passionate turkey hunter. Unfortunately, at least this year, that's been kind of, kind of squashed. All my trips were, were canceled this year, at least thus far. When life's not, not complicated like it is now, I'm, I'm usually in the woods multiple days a week. Heck yeah. Yeah, I would second that. I, uh, the area I grew up in, we didn't have very robust turkey population at all. When I was a kid, all the way through basically my teenage years and, and college, I, I suppose, I don't want to say that I was a late bloomer turkey hunting because I'd always hunted, you know, deer and pheasants and quail and I was always in the woods. The same as Mike explained, it's just the opportunity where I lived didn't exist. So I really got into it probably whenever I was doing my graduate work. And, you know, now I'm probably as a voracious a turkey hunter as anybody uh I tend to spend most of my time chasing Rios, though. I've got a special place in my heart, you know, for them. So uh, I tend to do most of my hunting in, you know, Louisiana and Texas. Yeah, that's that's interesting because we'll get kind of two perspectives because I know Mike kind of cuts his teeth on the Eastern, and you are more of the Rio Grande, which they're very different in many ways. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's why both of you guys, people like to listen to you more because you are turkey hunters. They don't just view you as like the legislators who have no idea what they're talking about. You actually are vying for the wild turkey from a hunter's perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people I was a turkey hunter long before I was a scientist or a biologist. I mean, it, it, being a hunter is what actually drove me to be where I'm at now. So I, I kind of look at what we do and the work that we put out and the, the conversations that we have. I I look at those first and foremost as a hunter, and I, I think it's critical that we that we try to make hunters aware of what we're doing, and more importantly, what it means to them, because that's that's who we are. I mean, first and foremost, we're we're turkey hunters, and we're we're thirsting for the same information that other folks are. Mm. Yeah, I think that the I think I agree with Mike. I think the the dissemination of knowledge about the wild turkey that you gain from a from a, uh, an academic institution and a research perspective, historically it's not trickled down to the everyday turkey hunter very easily. But with the onset of, you know, a variety of mechanisms via podcasts like this or social media, we're able to 
both conduct better outreach, but also engage with people that are interested in what we're doing and, and how it can kind of better inform them uh, about this bird that everybody is so, you know, enamored with. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, Cameron really hit the nail on the head. It, you know, there's at least to some extent, you know, I think a lot of hunters believe that wildlife biologists today are not, well, a lot of wildlife biologists today are not hunters. And you guys are responsible for educating and help helping to train some of those up-and-coming biologists at your respective universities. And, you know, I, I know that Brett has been very active in getting the ones, those students who are not hunters, into at least introducing them to hunting. And, and, you know, I just feel like it is such an important aspect of the management of the animals, you know, hunting is, and it's something that biologists need to experience. Now, that's not to say every one of them is going to pick it up and keep it up, but at least they know what it's all about, you know, having experienced it. So, you know, I think that's important. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's an implicit handshake or a nod of the head that any biologist that interacts with any hunter on the landscape gets whenever the hunter says, so do you hunt? And whenever the biologist responds, yes, I do, there's a connection that's immediately made between them where they understand where the other one is coming from. And and that's something that I think that everybody who's a hunter understands and, you know, wants from their local biologist. Well, with you guys being such avid turkey hunters and having devoted the majority of your careers to studying wild turkeys, you released a letter last week that really caught my attention and it it was based on something that Cameron and I had been talking about now for gosh three or four weeks or maybe yeah. four or five weeks I forget how long we're into this mess with this COVID-19 but in into March we were talking about it I could tell yeah scouting yeah and we experienced it firsthand really the first I would say two to three days of turkey hunting of turkey seasons and you know we experienced experienced it in georgia traveling there to hunt we experienced it where i experienced it in alabama cameron's given up on hunting in alabama and i don't blame him but the fact <laughs> i experienced in alabama on private land and we hunted public land in georgia but it was just it's impossible to not notice the increase in the number of hunters in the woods right now because of people being on furlough or being laid off or being instructed to shelter at home or whatever it happens to be. And we talked about, Cameron and I have been talking about how the wild turkeys were going to suffer this year. And that is what the letter that you guys wrote last week addresses, but you, from a scientist perspective, added so much more to that letter than what Cameron and I had been talking about and, and you know, really kind of 
of, you know, almost beating to death the topic of the number of, of hunters and the amount of pressure. And you talked a good bit in that letter about the future and how the increase in pressure, the increased harvest, and all that can affect our turkey numbers for years to come. And so Cameron and I wanted to get you guys on a call tonight and have you on the podcast to really talk about this topic more in depth in case some of the listeners haven't seen the letter on social media, and it's all over social media from last week. We just want to talk about it and you know, kind of get your opinions on some things. And, you know, I'm not saying that the people who are listening to this show need to cut back on their harvest numbers, but people who are listening to this show may want to cut back on the harvest numbers after listening to you guys talk some. So let's kind of dig in and, and talk about the premise of the letter. And, you know, I've touched on it a little bit, but you guys have got some statistics as far as harvest numbers and that kind of stuff year over year, you know, at least season to date for a lot of states. And I want to talk about some of that and, you know, maybe that'll help to drive home some of what we're going to talk about, which is the effects of, of this shelter in place and, you know, these hunters being off work and in the woods, the effect that that's going to have on our turkey population, not just next year, but for years to come. So let, uh, I guess let's talk about the, what there were four or five different points that you guys made in the letter. Can you kind of just rehash one of you kind of rehash those four or five points for us and, and talking about the effects that, COVID-19 is going to have on turkey populations? Yeah, so let me, let me kind of explain a little bit why that letter came about. It wasn't just Brett and I. It was actually, you know, these conversations started amongst a number of biologists in the South. We, you know, Brett and I communicate freely with each other, obviously, much literally on dozens of times a day. It became clear to us when we started thinking through how the changes to human behavior, how those changes were occurring, what we were seeing on the news, what we were seeing in our own hometowns. It became clear that there was a really distinct possibility that there were going to be a lot of people in the woods spending more time chasing birds, spending more time scouting, spending more time doing whatever it is because they had no other option. Yeah. In some states, people were being encouraged to go outdoors and spend time fishing or hunting, which is, is great. Uh, it's great. Tennessee's one of those. But it became, yeah, it, it became clear that the potential existed that those activities could have long reaching effects on this, on this bird. So we started, you know, literally text strings, conversations, kind of keeping tabs on what we were seeing from State harvest. I, of course, me being here in Georgia, I was in fairly constant communication with our turkey coordinator, getting information, trying to understand, you know, what are we looking at? My, my graduate students that are in the field doing field research are communicating with me and saying, you know, Mike, I've never seen anything like this. There, there are people, you know, every gate has two trucks. It's, mm-hmm. it's 
very difficult to move around. We're getting stopped constantly being asked, which is fine. So we basically kind of decided, let's start taking a look at this and let's put our thoughts on paper for two reasons. One, at some point we may look back on this year and we may recognize, I hope this is not the case, but we may recognize that our own actions because of the extraordinary circumstances that we've been placed in as hunters has influenced populations of this bird more so than usual. And two, if that is the case, we want to put our thoughts out so that people can at least think, they don't have to agree with what we're saying, but just think about what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. And we ultimately hope that people would start communicating to us and to everyone around them, and that's exactly what's happened. I mean, I've, this is the third podcast I've done this week, and today is Tuesday. And people are really interested in this in this discussion, and they're they're engaged because either they're concerned or they are dismissive. But either way, they're paying attention. And ultimately, that was the goal: was to put our thoughts out, not just opinions, but putting information out showing data that we were seeing, recognizing that, I mean, I suspect anyone outside of the state of Georgia has absolutely no inclination to go look at harvest data from Georgia, but I did. So we tried to put together a piece that was thought-provoking while also recognizing, which we, we carefully articulated, I think, at the end, that this is not a this is not an issue where we need to impose someone's moral convictions on someone else. We can't do that as hunters. We, we can't we can't take what one person thinks and impose that compass, if you will, on someone else. That's a slippery slope, and it's dangerous for hunters in general. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can educate people, and we can get people to start thinking. And if they choose to change their behavior, fine. If they don't, fine. You know what? If, if you're... If you're following your state bag limits and your state regulations, I'm certainly not going to fault you because that's not my job. But what my job is, is to educate people and make them aware of issues that are ongoing. And in our eyes, the trends we were seeing in harvest and in hunter effort, particularly on public lands, were things that we thought people should be aware of. And in retrospect, of course, we've gotten some hate mail. It goes with the territory, but we've, I'd say by and large, 99.5% of the messages, and there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds on social media and email have all been saying, you know what? I've been seeing the exact same thing on my back 40, but now that I read this, it makes me realize that it wasn't just me, that this is something that is pervasive across the region or across my state, and I appreciate you pointing it out to me. Not necessarily, I think it's a problem, but just I see it. So I think in the end, the goal was met. Just alert people to what's going on and and then let people have discussions and and go from there. As far as the the points we made, I won't go too far in depth, but the bottom line is there there were a few things we we really wanted to point out. One being, you know, at least in, in southern states, and, and there are there are exceptions across the U.S., but by and large, most states open their seasons 
before peaks in incubation, and many states open their seasons prior to peaks in, uh, peaks in breeding activity. So we pointed out, you know, hey, folks, think about this. If, if we're harvesting more birds because we're spending more time in the woods, then maybe consider the timing of, of this because in some states, that increased harvest is occurring during a period of, of the year, and in particular the breeding season, that could be impactful to this bird. We also pointed out, you know, hey, there's potential that you could fault hens. You could, you know, disturb hens that are incubating or laying. So if you do, please, you know, don't put cameras up on the nest or, or keep going back and checking on them. Just back out of there and, and let her do her job. We even noted that, you know, for, for Western subspecies, this made me, you know, ball game because, like I, I said when we opened, I mean, I had trips planned all over the country, mm-hmm. and I have been unable to take any of those trips, and, and several of those trips were to chase Merriams and Rios, and and I, I can't do that. And and I've actually been contacted by some outfitters that I've, I've hunted with in the past who, to a person, have noted to me that they, they're seeing local folks out and about more, but, of course, eastern hunters like me, by and large, are gone. They're not there, so they're kind of questioning to themselves, well, what is this going to mean? I mean, the, the kids that hunt my ranch on their own are, are working on farms and ranches, and they're not really hunting intensively like you guys did two years ago when you showed up. So I'm, I'm wondering what this is going to mean. Could it be? I, I don't know, but bottom line is we, we threw that out there because it's, it's clear to me, and, and I know Brad agrees with this, that the effects of this are not going to be uniform. They're, they're going to dramatically differ across the landscape and the subspecies because people, if they're paying attention to what they're being told in their own states, are not traveling as much. And in some states, they're being told, you can't travel here. We're not going to sell you non-resident tags, et cetera. So right. that was kind of the, that was kind of the take home. And I know I've, I maybe skipped over a few points. I don't. I don't have the article in front of me. But the, the bottom line is, we were simply trying to draw attention to an issue that we saw as being potentially problematic, particularly given that we know that harvest is impactful to this bird. The, the notion that you can kill as many of these toms as you want in a local area and it, it means nothing is is nonsensical. We know that. We've known it for decades. So the potential that we could be harvesting a, a great, you know, more toms per unit area this year than in previous years. We felt like it was something people needed to think about. Mm. Yeah. It seems like the Jake harvest is also extremely high. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to all the the states, but I can tell you in Georgia, the, I pulled the numbers actually right before we, we got on this call, and the numbers of Jake's, the percentage is not dramatically different than in years past. The percentage of the total harvest that is Jake's is not dramatically different. Mm-hmm. It is a little higher. Yeah. Um, Tennessee, I harvested, the numbers is pretty high. Actually, really high. Yeah. At least from what I've seen. Yeah. 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 And, you know, what we're seeing here and, and what we put in that, in that article was, you know, it's not the same in every state. Some states were more dramatic increases than others, but the bottom line is across the board, particularly on public land, the increases were were noteworthy and kind of suggest, I mean, 
I, I don't own land, so I can't I can't go hunt on. I, I have access to to a couple of private tracks in Georgia that are relatively small, and and I don't I don't have access to large tracks of private property. So and I and I know a lot of hunters are in that same situation. So I think it's important to think about this from a particularly a public land perspective that you know if, if we're if we're seeing notably higher harvest this year with and here's an here's a critical thing to consider by and large across the southeast which brett knows full well we have seen no increases in production mm-hmm. in recent years mm-hmm. now Somebody's, somebody's going to contact me and say, I disagree. There are lots of birds around my house. I saw 10 broods last year, whatever. Yes, you may have. Right. But across the range of this bird in the South, statewide, we have not seen any appreciable changes in production that would offset a 30 or 40 or 50% higher harvest rate. That, that's just, the math doesn't add up. So the notion that, well, the, there's just more birds in my area. There very well might be, but across your state, that is not the case. Yeah. So we're basically shooting more of this bird and not producing numbers commensurate with the percentage increase we're killing. That's kind of the take on. Yeah. Brett, I was going to say with, with the Rio Grande, because it sounds like you're more focused on the Rio because Mike is speaking to a lot of the, the Eastern birds with the Rio. Are you seeing positives? from this or are you also seeing a negative effect well to, to get specific more specific about the rios so the, the primary difference between what what was the eastern wild turkey and most of what we'll call your western birds which would be your your rios and, and merriams and goulds is that the environment that an eastern wild turkey exists in is fairly predictable there's going to be some amount of rain every year in georgia and we know about when green up is going to be and we know about when vegetation is going to show up and we know about when bugs are going to be available for fruit and it's fairly predictable as you move west the dynamics of the system for your rio grande turkey are fairly unpredictable that is because all driven by precipitation at the right time you know, we want to, to have really good production of Rio Grande wild turkeys. You want a whole bunch of rain in February, late February, and all the way about to the end of March so that you get a whole bunch of grass popping up and those birds will nest and colts will sprout out of the ground like you wouldn't believe. But that's not the way it is in places like Texas and Oklahoma. The, the old, the old saying, you know, the the next drought starts tomorrow or started today, you know, the day after the rain stops is pretty true. So this is a species that can go three or four years without a real good hatch, get the appropriate, you know, weather, and then have this massive pulse of birds that, that come into play. So the, the, the two systems operate a little bit differently. We have seen, as, as I know Mike is familiar with, and, and I am with the Easterns, pretty much long-term decline in the, the pulp per hen index, which is kind of the measurement that we use broadly as our how many individuals are being recruited. It comes from our, our brood surveys that are conducted during the, the summers by state wildlife agency personnel. And, you know, if you look back 20 or 30 years ago, you know, There'd be, you know, a half a dozen, five, four poles for every hen that you saw on the landscape. And those numbers are around one now. 
And and as we've watched turkey reproduction just kind of gradually decline every year, concomitant with that, we've kind of looked at how harvest has changed. And in some states, harvest is still going up. And as Mike alluded to, that means we're shooting more of the birds that we're putting on the landscape. And But in some states, harvest has started to turn over to where there's probably not as many birds on the landscape because the landscape isn't producing the the same amount of production every year. It's, just, it's more variable in your Rio Grande, but also I would say this, that for the vast majority of the Rio Grande stronghold, public lands are not they're not there. I mean, the, the, the amount of public lands in the state like Texas is yeah. fairly, fairly low relative to the amount of private lands. It doesn't mean that the harvest pressure isn't there. It just means that the amount of property that the average hunter can access, um, isn't, isn't the same. So, and as we kind of alluded to in the, in the document, um, it's probably going to have a different effect on Rio Grande because many people Travel to hunt in Texas or in Oklahoma or you know in Kansas or elsewhere, and it's not. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't turkey hunters in Texas. Believe me, there are. But everybody that was going to go to Texas and hunt, that time and energy isn't going to be expended in Texas this year. So they still have the time. It's going to be in Georgia or Louisiana or Alabama or Kentucky or Tennessee. They're they're home state, you know. Yeah, and I think, and I wanted to add something to. I guess what Mike was saying, and Mike, you can follow up on this, I think, but one of the reasons we wrote this was we were talking about the idea that the local guy always sees a lot of pulse on his 500 acres or on his back 40 or whatever it is. When you look at a broader scale and we see these long-term trends in reproduction, the statewide scale or at even the eco-regional scale, that's the scale that kind of Mike and I are thinking whenever we're thinking about what the impacts of, say, harvest would be. It's it's not one male being removed from the back 40. It's we've reduced the breeding density of males an extra 25% this year across a 1,000 square miles. Yeah. that That's a landscape-level implication that I think that, the the average hunter doesn't you know, sometimes link up, and that's why I think Mike and I are glad to be able to get this kind of stuff out there. Uh, Mike, did, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. You know what's really interesting to me about this is how just what we were talking about, and that is that regionally, this the COVID nineteen outbreak is going to affect turkey populations differently you know to me i think it's just that covid is really exacerbating the differences in what we're seeing you know you you go to these states in the northeast that have good populations of turkeys already and don't have a lot of hunters hunting them and now local hunters that is and now you have taken away your out-of-staters and you have not necessarily increased the harvest in those states year over year. You probably have dropped the harvest rate in those states year over year. And you add on to that the fact that they have low 
bag limits to start with. You compare that with a state of, say, like Alabama, and I'm obviously very familiar with it since I live in Alabama, that has a five bird limit and hasn't put in place any travel restrictions as far as out of state hunters coming to Alabama. And, you know, it, it can have such a huge effect on the population. And so, you know, I, I think that going from, from state to state, you know, that this is going to be, we're going to see a, a tale of two seasons for 2020 and what it is going to do for the future of wild turkeys across the country. And, you know, I can see the Southeast, at least Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, maybe Florida, just because their season opens so early compared to the rest of the country. And a lot of people are still traveling to Florida to get their Osceola or, you know, even traveling to the Panhandle before all the shutdowns took place. You know, I think you're going to see a pretty drastic effect on the turkey population in those states compared to, say, your Kentucky's, where you get two birds anyway, Arkansas, where you get two birds, Louisiana, where, well, in most of the state and other parts of the state, you get one bird. You know, Louisiana, you get one to two birds. You know, and you, you just, as you go further north, the bag limits are much more conservative. And, you know, I just don't think there's going to be a huge effect on the population in those states. You know, so, I mean, it, it to me, I think it's going to be a case of, for the next few years, the haves and the have-nots, state to state. Yeah, I think I think there's an important point for people to consider, and, and this is something I've, I've dealt with on social media the, the past week or so, is you, you, you get people that, that think they have the mindset, well, the state set the bag limit at five or three or four or whatever it is. They wouldn't have set that bag limit had that not been okay. And mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the real mindset yeah. you need to have is no, no state. States set their limits based on normal conditions and trends through time. So these bag limits that are set by agencies are set based on the best information they have from year to year and long-term trends in hunter activity and harvest. So this notion that all of a sudden, instead of the average turkey hunter harvesting zero birds, which is the case in some areas, or most hunters only harvesting one bird if they're successful. This notion that, well, okay, now the average hunter can kill 2.5 birds and that not have an impact doesn't make sense because the state has no way of adjusting their bag limit in response to this. They no state could have anticipated this was coming. Those bag limits that you're operating under, that season framework you're operating under, was determined in years past using available data that the state had on hunter activity and harvest. So if all of a sudden you change the numbers that go into that equation, if you will, then the system breaks down. And and that's why we pointed out in that in that letter that, for instance, and I didn't have data from other states, but in Georgia, the percentage of hunters that were reported that they had harvested two or three birds, which is the state bag limit, had increased by over 20 plus, I think 25 plus percent in both cases. 
So what you're seeing is at that point, what that tells you is the bag limits and the framework that those hunters include, and I'm one of those hunters, the frameworks they're operating under have suddenly become flawed through no fault of the agency because the numbers that they've used in years past to set those bag limits no longer apply. So I think it's important to people to consider that because we are truly in unprecedented type times in regards to how harvest could impact this bird. We've known that it's, that it's impactful for, for decades, but we've not been in a situation where the intensity of effort has been as high as it is now. And it, it may not just be a numbers game, which we alluded to. It, it may not just be, well, it's not just how many do you kill this year. It's what percentage do you kill this year? It's what percentage of your jakes do you kill this year? It's potential disturbance to your hens this year. It's, it's these things that accumulate and confound each other. And you tack that on to the notion that we're not producing more birds. And yeah. I hope it causes some, at least some people to pause and think, wow, okay, so the bag limits I'm working under don't really apply to this year. And, and, and again, we, we made this very clear at the end of this letter is, you know, this is not, this is not one hunter trying to tell another hunter what to do. It's about awareness. Right. If, if you're in a, if you're in a situation or an area where you're Lining, which I am sitting here in my in my truck. I'm looking across a landscape where the flock is not as large as it was 10 years ago, and you don't hear the number of toms that you used to hear. You don't harvest the number of birds you used to harvest. If if I'm in that type of landscape, I want to think critically about what I'm doing and what impacts it may have. It may not have. It may have no impact in certain areas. But from like Brad alluded to, he and I are we're kind of we think about this at a on a very broad scale, recognizing it's easy to pigeonhole yourself into the place you hunt. I do I do this all the time. Well, things look good. You know, our deer herd on this property looks great. Well, you know, hemorrhagic disease hit the next county over. Well, that's a problem. So I recognize my deer herd is doing okay, but my neighbor's is not. And that's the mindset that we were trying to get out to people is just kind of think broader. Because from a broader perspective, there's potential that that our actions this year could have consequences in the future. Yeah, I was going to tack something onto what Mike said because you know he and I are also considering it from the the two guys that are day to day professional academics, but almost every day, and he alluded to it, both of us talk to our state agency biologists. You know, the, 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 and I don't know what the particular names are in all of the states, but let's just call them the turkey program coordinator. And whoever the turkey program coordinator is, they're the person that is basically at the tip of the spear when it comes to turkeys, turkey hunting, turkey hunting access, turkey numbers, and effectively harvest success. So whenever a hunter this year has, for instance, a good year because they've got additional time to stay out in the woods as opposed to having to, you know, hunt from 6.30 to 7.45 before they got to rush off to get to work at 8 like I have done before. Now they can hunt 6.30 to, you know, dark every day. Right. Down the road, if 
things manifest out where we've had a impact, and again, at the eco-regional scale is what we're talking about, not at the Bassam Lanzito 40 acres, then the guy who, or the girl who's at the, the tip of the spear for the problem is the state agency biologist that's responsible for the management of turkeys in the state. And there is, as Mike said, nothing that person could have done to foresee this, predict that this was going to happen, or upon seeing that it was happened, suddenly reel back in seasons or reel back in bag limits. And and we're not saying that that kind of type of stuff it needed to be done, but the potential ramifications for what we're seeing now of increased hunter effort, increased intensity on the landscape, more removals at a larger scale of males, sometimes before the breeding season and sometimes before the peak of incubation, it can't not have some impact. Uh, I think that Cameron said something about increased juvenile male, Jake Harvest going up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the those are the two and the three year old birds that are going to be missing next year and the year after. And the, you know, Mike and I are academics, so, you know, we don't get, we don't get complained to whenever people don't harvest turkey. But the people that we deal with every day are the ones that kind of have to address this. And it's important to recognize that they're dealing with this kind of issue as well. And there's just no way for us to address it right now because we're in an unprecedented time. So that's, I think, in addition to why this idea of self-reflection that we kind of put out there is important to people to recognize is that it's not just a what happens on your property, it's the aggregate across a much larger area. Yeah, Yeah. I've been personally looking at some of our local WMAs around where I live, and I just see it there where, one, I'm seeing people, just unbelievable amounts of people. And then, as you said, the Jake harvest, I look at the numbers, and a WMA that had one turkey killed on it last year, has four killed this year. All four have been Jake's. And then another one that had three turkeys killed on it last year has had 14 killed, 10 of which were Jake's, and one was a bearded hen. I mean, I just, how can people not think that's going to have a major impact on next year and the year after on gobbling birds? And Cameron, you know, I don't want to come off as we shouldn't be hunting. And I know Mike does it, and that's not our intent, okay? Because I'm, I'm going hunting next year. But I think that our, and, and Mike, Jump in here if you think I say something wrong, all right? I think that our intention is to bring awareness that, you know, the whole crux of conservation has been everybody, all of us are in this together, and we're all looking out for the long-term sustainability of the species for recreational enjoyment. And I think that's kind of what we were trying to get at, was to get information out to people so that they understood that we need to be thinking about the long-term sustainability as well. Mike, do you agree with that? I do, and and I, I try to I try to think about this as a hunter. I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this, but so you kind of we we as human beings get pretty ingrained into the areas that we hunt. We we pay really close attention because turkey hunters are are cerebral. They think a lot. They, this is a, a one-on-one game. We hunt at a time of the year where you don't hunt other. We tend to think a lot. We spend a lot of time in the woods reflecting on kind of what's trying to figure out why did this go wrong, which is often what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> um, you know, 
why didn't you know why didn't he come to the call and why did he do this why did he do that but I, I kind of look at it and I I try to think about okay so I'm going to play devil's advocate and just like I, I received actually a, a Facebook message that basically said this it's not going to matter how many we kill this year it's not going to matter if we kill 50% more or 80% more they'll just rec- you only need one tom yeah. they can breed a pile of hands etc cetera, etc cetera. and and i look at that 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 argument and and i try to take it myself just humor me and i say okay well maybe that's possible and and i say this there is not a single piece of credible evidence to suggest that that would be the case we we know that increased harvest of Jake's will will impact the number of breeding adults in subsequent years. It's basic yeah. math. So if you are removing more Jake's than you typically do, then you are going to see a tangible difference in the number of breeding adults in your flock, unless you see a dramatic change in production. And even if you did, the effects are all set. So if we had a great hatch this year, you're still going to see lingering effects of this two years from now. Mm-hmm. So this this mindset, this notion that we're going to produce our way out of this, that it's not going to matter how many we kill, ignores the biology of this bird, which very clearly notes that it does matter how many toms are out there. It does matter which toms are out there, and it does matter how much access hens have to toms capable of breeding, and not all are, and we don't know which ones those are. So I I, I listen to that argument, and I hear it a lot, and I, I have to shake my head because that is not reality as far as how this bird functions. The bird that that you may see in your yard, the bird that you may raise in your backyard, the bird in your captive area, that is not a wild turkey. That's not the mating system they use. So this this notion that we could somehow catch a break and and claw our way out of this what we we think is going to be and then maybe the numbers turn, but what we think is going to be a fairly significant increase in harvest. This, the notion that we're going to produce our way out of that through luck, lightning in a bottle, that that's fool's gold. That's not going to happen. And if it does, I'll eat crow and I'll announce it to the world. But there is absolutely nothing that suggests to me, and I, and I know Brett will echo this, that's, that's going to suggest that all of a sudden we're going to see a dramatic change in production of wild turkeys in the southeast. Yeah. We are in a new normal with this bird. We are producing fewer. We are dealing with habitat changes. We are dealing with fragmentation issues, declines in habitat quality, changes to private land ownership. We're dealing with increases in, in predator communities, diversity of, commun- of predators. Uh, most nests fail. Most broods fail. Those numbers are not going to change this year. And if they do, we're talking very small percentages. So the take-home is we're not going to produce our way out of it. We're going to have to be judicious in how we think about harvesting this bird. And this year is kind of the poster child for here's a potential problem because we're in extraordinary time where people like, you know, I can't travel now, so what am I, what am I doing? Uh, I'm getting up and going turkey hunting in the morning. 
thankfully I'm going to a property that there haven't been any birds harvested. I hope I, I get to harvest one, but I mean, that's what, that's what people in my neck of the woods are doing and, and justifiably because they need to get out of the house. They want to, they want to get away. They want to escape. And, but the notion that, that those activities will have no effect and we'll recover from it in, in short order, the science doesn't say, doesn't, doesn't provide evidence to, to support that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how you can recover from something in short order when that something you're trying to recover from has been on the negative side of where we want it to be, not just for a year or two years or three years, but I'm going to tell you from my experience and what I've seen, yeah, well over 10 years in Alabama and in a lot of parts of Alabama. And I have to be careful saying that because there's still some parts of Alabama, just like you guys were saying, that have a very healthy population. But I can tell you from experience that, you know, and and observations that I don't see nearly the number of turkeys that I I saw in the early 2000s. Not, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. I I think that what's probably lost often is how hard it actually is to to create a new turkey right yeah. so yeah. If, if, if i mean really it, it, we often don't think about it because typically when people see turkeys they see a flock of turkeys right and they go okay we've got a lot of turkeys um but it's hard to create a new turkey so if you if you think about a hundred females on the landscape depending upon the year and, and I'll just pull a good average out. On average, say somewhere between 80 and 85% of those are actually going to try and nest at least one time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we're, let's just, we're at 80. So 80 birds try to produce the nest. Somewhere between 60 and 75% of those nests are going to fail. So no matter what we do, Let's just say 75, just to be on the high end. 75% of those nests are going to fail. So now we're somewhere around 15, maybe 12 females that actually actually hatched a nest. And I think, and Mike, jump in here, but I think the number of females that actually successfully bring at least one poult to 28 days, which is the point that we kind of consider them big enough, you know, they get up to that phantom chicken size. They're up in the trees. They can move around. It's somewhere around 7%. 7% of 12. So one. So, and I'm not saying that it's like this every year, but going back to Mike's point about us producing our way out of it, every bit of data that's been collected in the Southeast over at least the last probably 15 years and maybe longer has indicated that the, the productivity of the population has gone down. And to think that in a period where we're actually removing more males earlier and faster, and as we noted, you know, there's potential for disturbance of females, that we're going to see a pulse in productivity to get us out of this. It's, I think Mike said fool's gold, but I'd call it fallacy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just don't see it going to, I just don't see it happening, which means that we get ourselves into a situation where we've potentially exacerbated a problem through no fault of anybody. But the question is, what do we do next year? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where, I, that's where my concern is, is what do we do next year? What can we do next year? And, and I'll, I'll segue 
into something else is that if you think about the fact that not only are there more people in the woods, but there's also less people in the woods. The people that are doing habitat management aren't in the woods right now. The people that yeah. are that are working yeah. on the national forests, on the WMAs, they're not doing that right now. And that means that things that set back succession, timber harvest, all these things that are good for turkeys are so also are not happening at this point of of the year, which is when they should be happening. And that's going to confound, I think, some of the problem that we're facing. I don't know, Mike, if you have a, a different opinion on that. But. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, we, we've all seen this. I mean, everyone's curtailed in their activities. So people that would be managing our landscapes, at least on public lands for birds, their activities are, are cut. So from a habitat perspective, you know, and, and, and I get it. I mean, most turkeys live on private land, but if you're a public land hunter, this year is going to be impactful to you in a variety of ways for a number of years moving forward. I think it's, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty cut and dry in my eyes that from a, a number of, of perspectives, this, what, what has occurred and what is occurring now is going to impact you for a number of years in the future. Yeah. Wow. And I've got a, a comment to make about that. And then I, I want to pick both of your brains for some some actual numbers, some statistics, just to kind of drive home the point of what we've been talking about to the listeners. So, you know, over the past, here's my comment. So over the past, I would say three to maybe five years, there's been a very big push for a lot of turkey hunters to hunt public land across the country. And so we were seeing numbers increase on public land. Uh, Hunter, the number of man days in the woods increase on public land anyway. And now you've got this year and, and what we're going through this year happening. And you're, you know, Brett and I had a conversation Saturday where he said, hey, our man days are not up on, was it the Kasachi, Brett? In yes, sir. So yeah. the, the man hours or man days are not up on the Kasachi in Louisiana, but what's not being measured that is up are the hunter hours, the hours being spent in the woods hunting by those people spending a quote unquote or having a quote unquote day in the woods. So that's what's increasing the harvest is you know, a lot of these national forests and a lot of these public lands are, are measuring man days, but not man hours. And this year, that's what we're going to see is the increase in man hours. And so, you know, that's that's going to have an effect. But I do want to just just to kind of drive the point home and, and for you guys up in the northeast, in the Midwest, out west, bear with us because, you know, your states may be drastically different and i don't want you to feel like we're excluding you we can only talk about what we know about and and that is we're going to talk about some of these harvest numbers in the south and so and i hope this is kind of a warning for the states up north that are about to open in a week or two and just kind of hopefully y'all can take into mind what's happening in the south and see that it could potentially happen up north because i got an email from the New Hampshire Game and Fish, because I'm planning to go there this year, and they're already warning people, you know, be careful of your where you shoot. You know, there's going to be people everywhere. Is 
pretty much what the email said. <laughs> and so yeah. it's it's about to happen up there. So I hope those people will listen and take this to heart. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the other part of it, too, you know, is the safety aspect of it. But, yeah, so let's let's touch on a few states and the harvest numbers. So, Mike, you, you touched on Georgia, but do you know overall how much the harvest has increased in 2020 compared to 2019? Just ballpark. You don't have to be to the, to the decimal. Yeah. Point. Yeah. So as of this afternoon, the statewide harvest is there have been 300 more birds killed as of this afternoon than there were in our season last year. And we have about 25 days left. In our season, mm-hmm. on public lands, they exceeded total harvest on public lands several days ago. It's several hundred birds higher now. So unless people, you know, unless turkey stop being harvested, which we know is not going to be the case, common sense would say, yeah, by the end of the season, we're going to be looking at a fairly dramatic increase in statewide harvest and on public lands as well. And again, the, the percentages of hunters that have, that have taken multiple birds is, is quite a bit higher this year than it has been in any year past. Yeah. yeah. And 2019 wasn't exactly a, you know, that was a good year for harvest, I assume, right? Yeah. But I, I, the harvest, as you, as Brett alluded to, I mean, we're starting to see, and you, you guys know this, you know, you, we've started seeing, declines in harvest in, in some southeastern states, not all. Some of the declines in harvest are not as dramatic or precipitous as others. You know, some states like Arkansas, for instance, have seen you know, pretty telling declines in, in harvest through time. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, our, our harvest in Georgia has generally been, you know, we've, we've seen the, the better days and now, you know, harvest is kind of tapering off. And so what you're going to see this year is, is, in general, with a declining population, an increased harvest, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in my personal opinion, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that the harvest numbers are going down, obviously the population's going down, but I don't even think the harvest numbers are reflecting it at its magnitude because the hunters are more efficient now. We can shoot turkeys further. We have better decoys. We have better camo, better calls, better shotguns, better chokes. I mean, I feel like the opportunity to harvest turkeys is is easier in a sense than it was, yet our harvest is still going down and we have just as many, if not more, hunters. We have more hunters. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't disagree with that. The problem is that we can't quantify any of that, Cameron. It's it's really tough. I mean, we, you know, I'm as guilty as, as the next person, I'm literally, I'm sitting, I can turn around and look in my back seat. I'm looking at squatted hen decoy, a feeding hen, a Jake, an 870, two boxes of shells, two vests, ankle gaiters, and two pair of boots. I mean, we, we've developed gear, we've developed technology, and, and we use it. And I, we, you know, that's, I mean, a lot of hunting. I mean, look at, I'm a fanatical duck hunter. It's the same. I, I've got enough motion decoys and crap to fill up three pickup trucks. We just can't quantify what that means. I mean, we, we don't really know. We hear the anecdotal things like you, you just said, and, and I've seen and, and experienced myself where I doubt very seriously 20 years ago, I could have killed that bird I just killed. But exactly. in this case, I had a, I had a decoy. I, 
I had tools available to me that I didn't have 20 years ago when all I did was stick a diaphragm call in my mouth and grab my gun and my gloves and my mask and I hunted. And, and I killed birds, but I did not kill birds that in situations equal them today. Yeah. Um, but again, what that means at a broad scale, I don't know. We don't know. But there are a lot of conversations being had about it. I get, I get this question to God. I, I, I get this question, <laughs> yeah. you know, 20 times a day on, on social media, probably just on Instagram alone is, you know, what's this doing? I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know what it's doing, but I know what I see in my own hunting. And I did start hunting turkeys last year. I've done this a long time and, and I see bird behavior. I see reactions to things that I didn't see. 20 years ago and like i said i see birds that end up being harvested in my own hunts with my friends or or whoever that wouldn't have been harvested 20 yeah. years ago yeah and i mean my my point wasn't i'm not trying to chastise anyone for using the new technologies that are available i'm just saying it's alarming to me that overall we have more hunters we have more efficient hunters and yet the population and harvest trend is down so uh, that the harvest is down, even though we have more hunters who are better equipped to kill turkeys. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, yeah, I mean it. I mean it. it that's the numbers, alarming to me. The math. Yeah, yeah. The, the math is headed in two do, in two opposite directions. And and you know this, and and I'll say this, and 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 I'm okay owning it. But one of the biggest problems we have is we don't we don't have a really good grasp at a broad scale of what harvest rates are. In other words, what, what percentage of the toms are we killing? Yeah. We know this with certainty on study sites. You know, Brett and I, we have turkeys yep. marked all over the, the southeast. We know this with certainty, but we don't know it at scales that agencies use to manage the bird. And how many of your birds have been killed, Mike? Uh, we've had hey, 10 Mike, marked how, birds. Yeah, how many? Is, yeah. Yeah, we, we've lost 10 marked birds and we think if you go back and look through the years the number of birds that weren't reported so we think they're still out there we've got maybe another 20 out there that could be harvested so they they've taken a fairly significant percentage of of what's actually marked Mm -hmm. you know states have have done generally not a great job at least in the south of banding birds and getting harvest rate information so yeah. that's that's something we got i mean we got to fix we we have to do it i know a number of states that recognize it, and, and i'm not casting stones here i mean there there are states doing really good turkey research that's not stuff we're doing in it that's great but across the board we're a little late to the game here we yeah. we should have been understanding harvest rates better a decade ago Instead of discussing today how we're going to move forward under the under the realization that we don't know what harvest rates are at broad scales, it's a critical piece of information that we're that we're generally lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brett, yeah. how many yeah. of your tag birds have you lost? I haven't gotten Let's an update see. from my students today because they're still actively in the field. But we had let me see one two I had potentially thirteen that could have been available that were carrying, you know, some sort of telemetry tag. There are other banded birds out there, and I've had mm-hmm. five go down in the last week. So wow. a little bit under, maybe what is that, about 40% right now? 
on one of my study sites. But uh, I haven't gotten, we've got a bunch of birds tagged in Texas. I mean, thousands. And I haven't gotten updates on the band recovery for what's going on over there right now. But in Louisiana, one of the sites looks like five. And I've had two in another area, but it's primarily dominated by private land. It's not hunted. So it's not particularly indicative of what might be happening on public land or other private lands right now. So, but I will give you a a different number just to echo what Mike had said about Georgia and their harvest. Um, I actually have Louisiana's harvest numbers, which get updated every week. So for the second week of season in 2019, so last year, Louisiana had a harvest of 299 birds. For this year, it was 401 for the same second week of the season. Uh, that's a 34% increase. During 2019, for the first two weeks, Louisiana had harvested 1,317 birds had been reported through their reporting system. For 2020, it's 1,601, and that's uh, about a 21% increase in the number of birds harvested. So we're we're currently floating somewhere between, say, you know, about so right, right around 20% more harvest. Yeah. Do you happen to have Tennessee's numbers? Don't put me on the spot for today, okay? Uh, yeah. The, the last time I, yeah, the last time I looked at them was, uh, oh, I want to say a couple of days ago, and it was hovering I around. I think it was Sunday. Was a Sunday? It was hovering around forty percent, thirty, somewhere between thirty-five and forty percent. Last time I looked at their the telecheck numbers that Tennessee has on their website relative to last year and this year for the same number of open days of hunting season. I think they were hovering around 35 to 40 percent. I don't, I don't know what it is today. I'm sorry. It may have went down or it may have went up. I have no idea. Yeah. And our production hasn't been 40 percent better from nesting. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, no, sir. Not at all. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that you guys listening to this. Uh, hopefully get an idea of where Brett and Mike are coming from with their letter that they wrote last week and, and put out on social media. And, you know, what I hope that the listeners are truly picking up on in this call is what you guys said at the very beginning. And that is that you're not trying to order beliefs. Or your thoughts on any on anyone about how many turkeys they should harvest or anything like that, and uh, to me it's obvious that you're not trying to do that. But I I feel like the two of you do, and I know Cameron does, and I'm going to tell you the vast majority of the listeners to this podcast feel, and that is that we need as hunters we need to make the decision of are we going to just say, okay, hey, the state of Alabama says five birds. I'm killing five birds. I don't care if it takes me to the last minute of the last day. I'm not going to be happy unless I kill five. Or do we kind of look at our hunting club, our little honey hole property that we have, the little you know 200-acre farm or 500-acre farm or 2,000-acre ranch or whatever it happens to be and make a decision to take no more than X number of birds off of it and stop when we get to that number or just be happy to say, you know what, I've called in eight birds in gun range 
I've killed two. I let my 10-year-old son kill two. We're good. This has been a heck of a season. Or, you know what? I'm going to go every single day from now until the end of season, and I'm going to take my video camera. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's what you guys were trying, the point you're trying to get across in your letter. And to me, this conversation tonight just really drives that home, that you're not trying to shove your views down everybody's throat about, hey, don't kill five if your state says kill five. You're just trying to, to you know, kind of stress to people, give it some thought. You know, and and let's be managers of this resource that we have that's not endless. We know it's not endless. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I took the letter yeah. more of a presenting the facts. Take with it what you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Yeah. I think that if, if I can make a comment here, I, and my, Mike has said this before, and so I'm going to paraphrase, I suspect him, but it's... Our job as academics, one of the one of the reasons that academics are allowed to speak freely is that we're expected to speak freely. And uh, as as researchers, you're you're expected to always question status quo and try and always ask the next question. And and being a professional academic gives us some liberties to say what we think. And, and back it up with data, even if what we're saying may not particularly be popular. And it, it's not just a right, but, a, and Mike said this, so I'm, I'm very blatantly stealing it from him. It's not, it's a right, it's our responsibility as stewards of the resource that if we need to at least discuss something that may come off as unpopular, we're the ones that have to be the, the leaders of the discussion. It doesn't mean we particularly want to put our own put morals or expectations on what anyone else should do, but we should at least be the people that try to lead the discussion. Mike, I think that's a pretty good paraphrase of that conversation we had. Yeah, I mean, my, my thinking is, you know, and, and I don't say this lightly, we can't, as hunters, impor, impose a moral compass on somebody else. We, we just, that's not what we do. We, we can't take our own mindset and hold those around us accountable to our to our compass that's just not appropriate but what we can do is we can discuss amongst ourselves as hunters what is the most appropriate way to manage the resource that we all cherish we're all in this together we're all in the same fight we all want the same thing so i kind of look at it i don't expect anybody to just accept what we've said in this letter read it Think about it. Go get your own facts. Go dig through the numbers yourself. And if you decide that, you know what, I'm going to change the behavior that I use this year. I'm going to show some restraint. I'm, I'm going to do things a little different. Fine. And if you choose not to, based on either your knowledge of your local flocks or other information you have or, or your kind of thought process, fine. The point of this is not to to try to strong arm or coerce people into behaving a certain way. It yeah. is driven towards thinking about this resource that we all cherish. And it's a resource that's publicly shared 
regardless of whether you hunt on private or public land, this bird functions across landscape, and we're all managing those landscapes together. We're all hunting these birds together. And in the end, I think all of us agree. We want the same thing. We, we want to be with this bird, not next year, not five years, but for generations. And we want our kids and our grandkids to be able to experience the same things that we experience. And under that mindset, just consider the potential consequences of what we're seeing this year. And you make your own decision. And yeah. if we all do that, if we're all introspective, then we're going to work through this together as a group. Because, again, we all want the same thing. We often think about it differently. We have different perspectives, and that's what makes society rich. But we would be remiss, to Brent's point, we would be remiss not to point out the information that we have and had available to us because we are concerned. And if we fail to express that concern, then we're not doing our job. So that's kind of where I'll leave it. I mean, it, it, you know, it was, it's meant for education. It's meant for, for reflection and it's meant for discussion. And, and like I said earlier, it, it really, in, in some ways, even if, if people make the decision, you know what, I'm not going to do anything differently, fine. At least they thought about it. And if they thought about it and they listened to the information presented, they'll think about it moving forward and they'll consider it in the, in the years to come when we try to tease out what have the consequences of this year been. My fingers are crossed that they're not going to be dramatic the numbers suggest that maybe they will be we're just going to have to see but but the discussions have been fruitful and if they have a positive impact on the resource then it was worth it was worth the effort to have them yeah yeah i have one more question and i'll be done for the night in a brief statement is there any way both of you could give what would be the number one thing that someone should do today and over the next couple seasons to ensure that this bird is available for future generations. What could what would be the number one thing that somebody could do? Yeah. If you can make it in an easy statement, because I don't want to keep you guys all night, but I've been interested in this for a long time. You know, people say trapping and there's all kind of stuff. Showing restraint on how many you kill. What would be the number one thing that I could do to make sure that my grandson or granddaughter has birds to hunt like I do right now. I, I know the answer uh, to this. All right. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Coordinate with your your local, you know, non-governmental organization and take somebody else hunting and get them engaged in the sport. Okay. So increasing I, hunting I would, numbers would help I, that. I'm going to take a I'm going to take a different slant and I'm going to use your question to point out something that that a lot of people don't don't think about because I'm often asked, give me one thing. My response to your question would be, there is not one. There's many. Except that, recognize that this bird is dealing with a broad suite of issues, and there is not an answer to that question. There is not one thing that we can point to that we're going to be able to address. You know, Brett's point about engage people, absolutely. But, man. There, there are so many complicated issues facing this bird, habitat issues, predation, disease, harvest. There is not, there's not a smoking gun. We, we can't, as human beings, keep thinking that 
there is just one thing that we can fix because there's not. We're, we're going to have to take a broader surgical approach to understanding how to manage this bird, knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty. But the bottom line is there are a multitude of things, some of which are somewhat out of our control at a scale that's impactful to this bird. We're going to have to move forward recognizing that we're dealing with uncertainty and we're going to have to try to change and affect the things that we can. And some of those things, like what we've talked about tonight, such as harvest, such as timing, some of those things are are somewhat controversial and they're they're you know they they impact the way we behave and, and we're going to have to look at those things but we're going to have to use the mindset of there is no smoking gun yeah it's it's death by a thousand cuts yeah and yeah. we're going to have to stem the bleeding where we can and keep learning where we have holes in our knowledge that that would be my answer absolutely and i think in my opinion the number one thing or whatever is to educate and what you guys are doing is educating people in a non-forceful way from the perspective of a turkey hunter, telling people, here's the data, do with it what you will. And I think that's probably the number one thing we could do to make sure that we preserve this bird. I agree. I mean, you know, education is knowledge is power, man. I mean, yeah, I've said this a bunch of times and it's true. I believe this. I'm not just saying it to blow smoke. Turkey hunters, I think, are the most cerebral hunters there are. I mean, we we think, man. I mean, we yeah. we're matching wits against we're we're matching get wits against a single animal, not managing a deer herd or you know. Now I get caught up in this. I, I identify a deer and I I go try to kill him because that's what I like to do. But turkey hunting is pretty visceral, and we think we we think about the bird, we think about strategies, and man, I mean, it, it's a it's a different pursuit. So if we can educate ourselves. And we can discuss amongst ourselves how to be better stupid, then we're going to be okay. If we can't and we refuse to have those conversations, then we're going to see that populations of this bird in a lot of areas are not going to, re- they're not going to respond. Mm-hmm. So the more we know, the more we all, the more we talk, the more we have conversations, the more we think outside the box. In my opinion, the better off we are. Yeah. yeah. Very well said. Mike and Brett, and I, I mean, you already know, Cameron and I will keep you on the phone forever. (laughs) I only got to page one of my questions, so. (laughs) Uh, We'd be, we'd be, we'd be glad to come back on. I can guarantee, I can guarantee you that we would be, at, at any time, I'll be glad to come back. We would certainly love to have you back on, and we will do that for sure. And say correction, you know, we will have you back on since you offered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to thank you because, you know, Mike, you've been sitting in your truck out in the parking lot in front of your neighborhood pool. Yeah. And Brett, you know, you've been sitting there, and you both have been sitting there with your telephone stuck to your ear for, gosh, we've been going on now for, I think, over an hour and a half. and you know, what Cameron said is true. We could, we could keep, continue to talk about this all night, but we need to let you guys get back to your lives and your families. And so we appreciate you taking time out to really, you know, I guess deep dive into this a little bit more with, with all of us with this topic, because it really, you said it. I'm just going to repeat it. This could 
very well be the turning point for us and not in a good way, not in a good way for this, for the bird, I should say, not for us turkey hunters because we're, we're not really why we're here. It's, we're here for the birds. And so this season could be it. I mean, you know, could, could set the birds back in a big way for many years to come. And so I, I hope that a lot of the listeners to this show will give this some pause and give it some thought and make a decision to move in whatever direction they want to move from there. So thank you guys for giving us so much to think about with this topic. And thank you again for all of your research. And I'm, I'm going to give one of you guys just very quickly, just take a couple of minutes and tell us about you've got something coming up tomorrow. Today's Tuesday. Tomorrow's Wednesday. We won't air this until Thursday, but for every Wednesday or on every Wednesday for the next several weeks, you guys have something coming up with the NWTF. And would one of you share a little bit of information about that? Um, yeah, Mike, do you so, want to? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, for the next six weeks, we, um, through the graciousness of, of NWTF, they, are coordinating Facebook Live events, uh, which will occur every Wednesday evening. Uh, I believe, Brad, it's 5 p.m., if, if memory serves me. Uh, yeah, 5, 5 p.m. p.m. Eastern. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that's, that's it. Um, and those are, are basically, you know, it's just about we know everybody's cooped up in their in their houses. We know people are are longing for information, uh, engagement, if you will. So that was basically just the idea. Hey, let's let's sit down once a week and let's talk turkey in a, a an informal way. Let's talk about topics that are interesting to people. So we're going to cover this week, we're going to cover predation and, and predators and how they influence turkeys and what, what we've seen through our own field work and talk about what it means to the bird. In, in future weeks, we're going to talk about things like prescribed fire and how it influences turkeys gobbling and hunting and, and root behaviors and all sorts of, of different topics. So it's just basically a way to, to allow people to get a snapshot of what we're doing and what the research says. And then more importantly, be able to ask questions that are on their mind. It's, NWTF is going to be moderating it. So there's, there's a bunch of folks behind the scenes that are going to be fielding questions online and then routing those questions to us so that we can parse through them real quickly and, and take the, the ones that we, that we think would be the most interesting to the broader audience and provide some answers, hopefully, and get people some information that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have gotten in a format engaging and conversational and and hopefully of interest so we've got six of those upcoming and and all you have to do is is follow nwtf on their facebook page and if you log on if you get on facebook and get on their page at 5 p.m on wednesday you're going to see it'll go live and we're going to be shooting some of that out on our social media accounts we've been doing that but what We'll do that again on, on tomorrow and actually send the, the active link out. So if you just click on the link, it'll take you directly to, to the, uh, to the event and you can view it. And these are supposed to last about an hour. If we have a lot of interest, we'll go a little longer than that, but we're trying to kind of keep them to an hour so people, you know, don't lose interest and 
and yeah, we're we're hoping they'll they'll be fun and informative, and and that people will enjoy them, and and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I know it's going to be a big hit, and I'm looking forward to it. So it'll it'll be an opportunity for me to have a cocktail and not have to worry about talking. So. <laughs> uh, I can listen to you guys talk about well, turkeys, go- and I can have a cocktail. I'm I'm going to have a cocktail, and I'm going to talk about turkeys. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sweating I, it. I, I had a cocktail, a cocktail tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, again. Well, again, thank you guys so much. I mean, this has been awesome. I've yeah, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it, and again, how much I appreciate what you guys do and sharing your research and sharing the word with us, with us hunters, you know, you are one of us. And so, you know, you know, I, and understand our passion. And so I, I thank you for all, all of what you guys do and for all of your students as well. It's a lot of legwork that goes into doing all the research and everything's being done and you guys couldn't do it alone. So we appreciate them as well. Well, we, we appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this has been great. And we're we're always looking for outlets to provide the scientific information to the hunting community and, you know, to our hunting community as well. So, yeah, anytime we get a chance to do this, this is fantastic. Awesome. Let's do it again in the not too distant future. You guys have a great night. Thank you. You too. Take care. Wow, man, that is all so interesting kind of can be somber i hope that that wasn't one of our more uplifting episodes in my opinion it's a little more somber but it's a topic that needed to be discussed it needed it needs to be talked about among circles of turkey hunting friends right now yeah and you know i wrote the title out for this week's show a certain way i was very intentional in how i wrote it out Very Mm -hmm. intentional in the words that I chose when I wrote it. So the title is How COVID-19 May Affect Our Wild Turkeys. Yeah. Not just wild turkeys, not the wild turkeys, our wild turkeys. They're a resource for us. Yeah. They truly are. Yeah. And so it is up to us to manage that resource. And I think it was Mike who said that our states could not plan for this. Our departments of game and fish, or whatever they happen to be called in whatever state you're in, could not plan for this. So they could not make adjustments to their bag limits. Yeah, there's no way to forecast this into the season. So it's not anybody's fault. No. And... And, and you know, if you want to look at it like, hey, you know, we're being punished because we can't go to Kentucky and hunt. We're being punished because we can't go to Washington and hunt. Yeah, I don't disagree with the statement that we're being punished, but we're not being punished by a game and fish department. We're not yeah. punished by elected officials. We're being punished by a virus. That's right. And, so. you know, it's it's what we all have to deal with we are all on the same playing field when it comes to this virus and you know we got it we got to deal with it and we need to consider how this virus is going to affect the game animal that we love so much and so you know i had a 
text conversation with my buddy Zach Lucas, who lives in West Virginia today. Mm -hmm. And he's in Ohio hunting. And he mentioned to me that there are people everywhere on public Mm -hmm. land in Ohio. You know, so I'm pretty sure Ohio, you get two turkeys. That's your bag limit. Yeah. And so, you know, there's even these states that have lower bag limits are going to have more turkeys harvested this year than normal so but it's states like alabama tennessee mississippi georgia florida south carolina that have three four and five bird bag limits they're really going to be paying the price that's my opinion will yes unfortunately i think unfortunately we'll find out and the the Impact. I think we hashed this out throughout the episode, but the impact is going to be greater on the public lands. And I think that's due to multiple reasons. Everybody can hunt longer, harder, and there's just more desire to hunt public lands in the United States right now. Yeah, that's the the cool hot thing to do right now is to go kill birds on public land. Yeah, and they're just getting flooded with people. I looked it up in Tennessee statewide on public lands in two and a half weeks we have already killed more turkeys by a hundred on public lands than we did the entire 2019 season and there's three and a half weeks left in the season so wow they've just gotten whooped man and 2019 was a good year yeah (laughs) so it's not like i'm comparing it to our worst year we've ever had it was last year it was a good year there were plenty of gobbling birds on public land well this year they're paying the price so i just it's interesting to see it. I mean, it, it really is. It, it seems like it just escalated so quickly. I don't think anyone... I knew it was going to be bad when I was scouting and seeing the amount of people I was just in the woods, but I didn't realize how impactful it could be. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, well, that was good info, though. Yeah, it, it's really good info. And I have to say, I love having those two guys on the show. You know, and I know. I could keep them on the show and ask them questions <laughs> for hours. Oh, I'm telling you, I could, we could just have them on the show every week and I would never lack for questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me. I just love those topics so much because the bird interests me so much. And those guys have insight that I'll never be able to see because they have dedicated their careers to the bird. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting. And I, I'm skeptical of many people in the world, but I, I believe those two guys are doing what they think's right. And I think they're spreading true, good information coming from a hunting standpoint. So yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, we've given you guys some food for thought. And to repeat what Mike said, you know, we don't want to force our beliefs and our opinions of what you guys listening to the show should do about your own personal bag limit. But we, like Mike and Brett, want to give you something to think about. Is it worth it this year, instead of harvesting three birds, maybe you kill two, maybe you kill one, maybe you call in three for your 12-year-old daughter, and you don't kill any, and then you take a video camera or then you call a season. Yeah, you're going to sacrifice this year, but you may just help yourself out come next year and the year after and the year after. Yeah. But that's going to be hard to do on public land 
because the guy next to you, the guy in the parking spot next to you. <laughs> on the tree next to you? <laughs> the guy on the <laughs> tree next to you this season. <laughs> on your right side, then the guy on the tree next to you on the left side. <laughs> yeah, they may not have the same opinion, but, you know, just just give it some thought. Give it some thought. That's all that we're saying, you know, and that's really why Cameron and I wanted to get Mike and Brett on the show. Well, we wanted to get Mike and Brett on the show because we think they're awesome and they do good work. But we felt like this message, their letter that they wrote, we felt like had too many good points in it to ignore it. So any of you guys who want to read the letter they wrote verbatim, it is on social media. Go to Mike's either Twitter page or Facebook account, and his Twitter handle is at Wild Turkey Doc. Brett's is at Doctor. That's D R Short Spur. And just scroll down. I believe it was Tuesday, the fourteenth of April, that that letter was posted. So go check that out. Yeah. And yeah, it's worth a read. It's yeah. not it's not terribly long either. Yeah, I mean, it's four pages, it's three and a half concise. pages. Yeah, yeah, it's very concise, straight to the point. Straight to the point. Very well written. Easy to Full read. I mean, it's it's what you want. When exactly. I when I was in high school, I had an English teacher that would assign us a term paper. You know, of course, you know whatever the topic was. The very first question that was asked, hand goes up, Mrs. Roby. How long does the paper need to be? And she would say, it needs to be like a woman's skirt. Long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to make it interesting. <laughs> I like it. I will I never like forget that. That is the letter that they wrote. Long enough <laughs> to cover the subject, but short enough to make it interesting. So, all right. We had over an hour of a fantastic interview we played for you guys. Cameron and I yeah. are kind of babbling a little bit right now. We're going to wrap this thing up. Yeah, um, let me give a calling tip of the week. Yes, sir. This week, my calling tip is going to be a little more interesting. I have noticed on social media a lot more people being shot this year while turkey hunting, and I hate to see that. Wow. So my calling tip this week is if you suspect, because I've done this before where I have called and another hunter has called back to me, and there's a skilled caller, so it sounds hen-like. If you suspect that could be another hunter, my tip is to give an obvious owl. And by that, I mean, just in case it is a hen, it's not going to scare the turkey, but it should be obvious enough where your fellow hunter will know, okay, that's a human being. So you hear somebody call to you, and you think that's either a hen or a hunter. It might be a hunter. Just kind of do a woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, and they should know at that point. And then you can both stand up and approach each other. So that's my calling tip of the week because I am not liking the amount of accidents I'm seeing on social media this year. It's crazy. Yeah. More hunters in the woods typically means more accidents. Yes. And so I just, that's a strategy I've used when I've suspected that it could be a hunter and it's worked for me because I've done that and immediately seen the other guy stand up. We both stood and approached each other. There was no question as to it was two human beings. And a half the time, they'll owl back at you. But you don't run the risk of blowing the bird out of there because I've also done that where I'm like, oh, it's a hunter, and then a hen comes running out. So yeah. that's my calling tip of the week. That's a good one. All right. 
our favor of the week is this, and I'm really going to beg of you guys to help us out with the favor of the week this week. And it is to not only share this week's episode using the share feature in your podcast player application, but also to share it via social media. We want the word, we want this episode to be spread everywhere to every turkey hunter you know. It can make a difference. It really can. Especially for you guys in the north, in the northeast, in the northwest, whose seasons are really kind of just getting started. This can make a big difference for you. So, you know, some of the points that Mike and Brett made really hit home for you. Share, share, share this episode any way shape form or fashion that you know how to do make sure yes. the word gets out so yeah and that's more so a favor for the wild turkey in my opinion than it is us <laughs> our, this is just info that needs to get out our wild turkeys. our wild turkeys yeah well, anyway i hope y'all enjoyed that episode i know i did yeah and we're you know i'm just gonna go ahead and say this and then we're gonna wrap this up but we're going to somehow work with brett and mike to have them on the show more often because yeah. you guys who are diehards like Cameron and I are, I know you're eating up what they're putting out on social media. And if we, Cameron and I, can get you guys and a little selfishly us some more of that content through this podcast, that's what we want to do. So we're going to try to work with Mike and Brett to get them on a little bit more regularly. So stay tuned for that. Yep. All right, we're done. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.